Welcome to Top 5, a show where we count things down and put them in order from uh, least to most. Or something like that. This is Top 5. <laughs> least what? From the least this, by the to way, the most. In this case. From, this is not. This is the also ran for uh, Stephen's best intros to Top 5. There you go. <laughs> this week, uh, I forget, somebody suggested this. Top 5 books that changed our life. Now, we've done a, a, a Top 5 where what 5 books would we want to have on a uh, deserted island. That was the first top five I ever did. Was it? Yeah. All right. Well, welcome yeah. aboard, Zach. Thanks. Uh, Matthew's over there right, running his mouth. There's Rodrigo. Uh, hey. But this time it is the hey. top five books that changed hey. our lives. And uh, Matthew, why don't you start with your number five? I want to yell at you in, in, in Spanish and Italian. Uh, my number five, when you say changed your life, there are a lot of different means. Some people would presume that you meant changed your life for the better. I am not that person. Because my number five is a book that changed my life eventually for the better, but in the short term, it made me want to kill. My number five is Who Moved My Cheese? An Amazing Way to Deal with Change in Your Work and in Your Life. It is a motivational book. Now, if, if you know anything about me, you've you don't probably like to be heard me say that I don't like motivational texts. When it comes down to it, motivation to me is exactly like spiritualism. It is entirely personal, and I'm not necessarily going to go over it with you, especially if you've espoused some need to try and tell me how it should work or change what I want to do. So, so let me ask you this. So, do you turn into like mm-hmm. a Chris Farley rage and, and tear the poster off the wall every time you see the little cat with the hang in there uh, slogan on the bottom? Clearly, that's exactly what I meant, Stephen. <laughs> I could see that. That totally is exactly happening. what I meant. When I live in my van down by the river, no, I don't. I don't feel, and this is this is exactly you know that I, I have this conversation with my wife, and one of my college friends is hugely into crowdsourcing his motivation. He will post on he'll post on Facebook, you know, should I do X or should I do Y? And I'm like, which do you think is smarter? But who moved my cheese changed my life in a very unpleasant way, and here's how. I used to work in call centers, in call center environments where essentially everybody is a replaceable gear. And they were really huge on who moved my cheese in call centers because what it really says is you, we don't owe you anything. Uh, the company owes you nothing. There's nothing that you actually should expect us to give you. And if we stop giving you something, then you should just be happy that we ever gave it to you in the first place. Or as they say, change happens, anticipate change, monitor change, adapt to change, change, enjoy the change, be ready to change again tomorrow. Now, I am very, very experienced, and I like to think flexible within a call center environment. I know that change is inevitable. I know that change happens. Hell, I read Spider-Man. Change is constant. But when you break it down, who moved your cheese has an odious underlying metaphor, which is literally you're stupid for assuming that anything is ever going to be consistent. It's literally saying to you that if you expect consistency, if you expect, you know, anything to be in any way solid or reliable or constant, you are wrong and unprepared. And so we've come to 
wash your brain. So Who Moved My Cheese was a big deal. And one day they said they were going to have a big party about Who Moved My Cheese by giving everybody in the call center, like 800 people, a cheeseburger. They did not monitor how many cheeseburgers they bought, how many people were on, or how many cheeseburgers each person got. So by the end of the third hour of this eight-hour thing, they ran out of cheeseburgers. To which some wag responded to an email with, well, this just proves the message of who moved my cheese. Oh, that's awful. It is awful. And the, the best part of the whole thing is somebody thought that was a good idea. They thought that this was a really good plan and that they could do this. And at the end, that we could all take home a valuable lesson. By the way, the one girl on my team had three cheeseburgers and was forever named the Hamburglar until she quit in her age. I didn't like her. She was awful. Who Moved My Cheese changed my life because it made me realize that in that call center environment that I was not appreciated, that I was not necessary, and that I shouldn't expect either of those things. And seven years later, I finally left the call center environment. I, I, I learned my lesson slow. It takes a while to internalize things. But uh, that's why my number five is Who Moved My Cheese. It changed my life by making me believe that I am just basically a cog and a hateful thing and that, you know, nobody owes me nothing. So, yeah, that's depressing. You, you, Way to start the show. You were forced to read this book at one point, right, Zach? I actually never read this one. Oh, you didn't? Okay. No, I never had to read this one. I thought you did. No. I know that they You don't want it to. Out. It's not any good. No, one of our instructors at the university has a bad habit of yeah. pulling crap books out and forcing you to read them. And it's just like, really? Seriously? I, they tried to it's force this on me. They tried to force it on me. And I was like, okay, thanks. And it basically gathered dust on my bookshelf for 13 years. Yeah, I've never heard anything good about this book. Yeah, I mean, I can understand the, nothing, the concept there's of... There's nothing good about this book. Well, but you got to appreciate the concept because a lot of people don't of change happens. A lot of people don't realize that change happens. And then when change does occur, they fly into this, this rage and go on to Twitter and uh, comment about how dare you do this to my favorite comic book character kind of thing. Right. And uh, they don't realize these kinds of things. So yeah, when you say that this book uh, treats you like you're stupid, well, maybe some people don't realize that change happens and is inevitable and you need to, mm -hmm. to uh, well, recognize being, it. Being prepared for change and being told that change should be the norm and that you're the problem for not anticipating the change are two entirely different matters. I will agree with you that change is inevitable. I will never believe that change is so inevitable that we should all just decide to lay down and die, which is maybe an extension of what the book is saying to you, but not really that far of an extension. Mm. Rodrigo, what do you have for your number five? Uh, let's see. My number five is a book that I is probably the first book that I ever stood like stayed up all night to read. Yeah. Um, I was pretty young um, and um, I started reading it and I just couldn't put it down. And uh, what it did for me is it gave me kind of this basis that um, fantasy and sci fi don't necessarily have to be what you expect you know like we're all like super used to like oh here's a fantasy book or comic or movie or whatever here's the elf here's a dwarf you know here's a magical land that they go to um or whatever and it's there's these tropes that are very uh prevalent but um a wrinkle in time is a super weird mm, book mm -hmm. um it's a book about time travel it's a movie book about dimensional travel um and it's just like it is so 
crazy times. Like I was just flipping through and it's like, and then this lady turns into a centaur with wings and then they fly and fly and they go and they go into like this universe that exists inside of a single mitochondrion. And I'm like, this is great. Like, this is the best <laughs> thing I've ever read. Um, and really it kind of set up a lot of stuff for me. Um, just kind of thinking about, um, from there on out, the media that I was absorbing and saying, well, do these structures have to be this way? Can this entire story take place inside of a mitochondrion? Um, and sometimes that would really help some of these really kind of boring ass stories we encounter. Um, so yeah, wrinkle in time, you know, as somebody who had grown up watching Disney movies and who had, uh, Grown up reading, you know, pretty standard kids' fair, um, A Wrinkle in Time really shook me. And it said, you know, first off, like, the line between sci-fi and fantasy is super blurry. And anybody who tells you mm. otherwise is cross-eyed. Mm. Um, and also, you know, think about the way that fantasy should be. You're wrong. It doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> Cool. Uh, Zach, what do you have for your number five? Yeah, so uh, the last couple of these shows, there's been this, um, well, I think we talked about the last one and then maybe on Zach on film where it's like um, um, Zach is the last couple of years, um, you know, looking into new things, discovering things about himself, being all all great and weirdly introspective and all that fun jazz yeah no there's nothing wrong with that so that uh a lot of this reflects that and then i thought why do all these books come in the last two years i'm like oh yeah because i'm only like 23 <laughs> i haven't been alive that long to read that many books uh so yeah, starting out reads before they're 21 anymore. no one no one no one reads until you get out of no. school and then once you know how to read then you, you'd say well i guess well, i have me, time now well did you i mean Matthew, I know you because your your grandmother was a, a school teacher. You read a lot growing up. Um, oh yeah, books I, were like background radiation. I read books nonstop growing up. I mean, I love going to the library every every week. We'd go mm-hmm. to the library ten miles away uh, to get books. Rodrigo, were you a big reader growing up? I was, but like today, I'm actually not a big fiction reader. Like I was yeah. always mm-hmm. really interested in like science and nature and all this other stuff. So that's mostly what I've read. Um, like I, I still like people are like, you should read a confederacy of dances. And I'm like, I'll get to it. Yeah. yeah. But I, but I won't. I mean, I, I did read, I did read, but a lot of the books that I read were like fiction. And I, I, I think, uh, I mean, on my last, uh, preview, I only have one fiction book on here. Uh, and so I think non, when we talk about books that, uh, that affect me or changed my life, I believe is, is, the, is right. the title, uh, it's more nonfiction books. And uh, one that was uh, big uh, just about a year ago uh, was a book with a misleading title, and I'll get into it. It's called uh, How God Changes Your Brain, yeah. which it really should just mm-hmm. be uh, – <laughs> like the whole the title is misleading. It should be How Does uh, Positive Meditation oh, yeah, yeah. Completely Change the Pathways of Your Brain? It's right. a, not as good of a title, uh, but that's pretty much what the whole book is about, and it talks a lot about – uh, the positive impact of uh, meditation on good thoughts and how that will stimulate uh, the more developed part of your brain, the higher functioning part of your brain up in the up in the top, the good part that makes us all old thinky thinkers and not 
right. uh, doggy dogs yeah. or reptilians. Mm-hmm. And that when you focus on bad negative, and they, and they uh, well, uh, attribute it to, uh, in the way, like Old Testament, New Testament kind of things. If you focus on hate or just hate in general, judgment, uh, death, things of that nature, you are accessing the reptilian part of your brain. And these are just, uh, you know, ideas that if I was taught them at some point, never quite stuck and uh, opened up my mind to more sciencey things. And that's my uh, cliffhanger to my number four. All right, cool. Uh, so my number five is a, it is super, I wouldn't say it's super not well-known, but it's definitely a not um, well-known book by this author. A lot of people know Douglas Adams from his uh, Funny Time books, uh, but not a lot of people realize that he wrote a book that was an account of some actual adventures that he had to go see endangered species. The title of this book is called Last Chance to See, and it chronicles his adventures. I think it's like seven endangered species that he's going out to see, like an endangered rhino, bottlenose dolphin. um, um, I forget what the other ones are. but in each of these chapters, he has some kind of funny adventure that happens to him, like when he goes to Madagascar, being woken up in the middle of the night by the birds that don't know how to go to sleep. He has a very funny way of talking about those birds and how they don't go to sleep. And it's great. Um, but at the same time, it's a very sad book because reading this, I realized that I would never have a chance to go and see these animals in their native habitat. Mm. Sure, I can go to a zoo and see a rhino in a cage, but I will never have the pleasure of going and seeing a black rhino on the plains eating grass in the place where it belongs. Mm. I will never be able to see an animal that is almost extinct. And in fact, one of them, I think, was a, a frog that is nearing extinction. And the audiobook, I, I actually have the physical copy of the book, but I also bought the audiobook. And it's narrated by Douglas Adams, and he actually has recordings that he recorded in some of these locations. So when he's talking about this one animal who's making this sound, I don't know, maybe it's one of the Galapagos turtles, whatnot. Um, you're hearing it making the, this sound, trying to call a mate and not being able to find a mate. And you feel very, very sad. Mm-hmm. Now, on the plus side, Galas- the Galapagos uh, tortoises have rebounded uh, tremendously. The American bald eagle has rebounded. But for Douglas Adams, this was his last chance to see these animals, and he was willing to go on this adventure for it. And it is a fantastic read. I, it really just opened my eyes of, uh, the world is bigger than, than what you think, Mr. Schleicher, and um, you need to realize that your actions are causing harm to a lot of other things in this planet. So it was a very good book for me, and I really, really enjoyed that uh, when it came out. And I forget what year it came out. I want to say ninety. Two or something like that, um, but it, but a great book. Last chance to see by Douglas Adams. My number five. Did you listen to the Radio Lab Galapagos episode? No, I don't think I. Oh, have. look it up. Talk okay. about a lot about the animals and the repopulation of the species. Then there, it's pretty amazing. Okay, cool. Um, so there you go, uh, Matthew. What do you have for your number four? My number four is actually kind of a formative one for me because I didn't have really any input. Well, I guess that's not entirely true. Let's put it this way. I didn't have anything like this that I had yet realized I had encountered 
So when I actually read this book, I was just utterly transformed. And it was kind of familiar in that it takes place in a place that's sort of like, you know, my Midwestern home in a small town with a, a boarding house and strange people that live there. And, oh, yeah, there's a penguin. And it was really funny and it was political all at once, which is why my number four is Loose Tales, the first collection of Burke Brothers' Bloom County. If you've ever read this one, it's probably the least of the Bloom County collections. And yet somehow, because it's the first and because it's giving you the introductory stuff, it's still my sentimental favorite. It's the first one that I read, and it introduces the people in really weird ways. You don't necessarily know where it's all going, and you can see it going from Burke trying to emulate a strip like Doonesbury and then trying to do more of a day-by-day adventure thing, and then just sort of mutating into something completely strange and becoming the Bloom County that, you know, 25 years later, we all go, oh, yeah, Bloom County, I've heard of that vaguely. But it introduces Opus the Penguin, it introduces all of the major characters of the book, and it does it in really weird ways. Just a couple of years ago, um, I'm going to say IDW, because I don't know, started actually releasing uncut collections with all of the Bloom County episodes. Yeah, it's IDW. It's IDW. And the first one had dozens and dozens of strips I'd never seen. And suddenly the weird transitions in this first book make perfect sense. But I still don't like that collection as much as this first one because, well, you know, I was 10, 12, I'm going to say 12, 1984, 1983, when this came out. And it really helped to define for me what is funny in the universe. And if you've ever thought that I'm funny, first of all, thank you. Second of all, what's wrong with you? And third of all, you can probably blame my number four, for at least part of it, Loose Tales, the first collection of Bloom County. Go check it out, because it's got a penguin. Cool. Rodrigo, what do you have for your number four? Uh, My number four uh, changed my life not necessarily because of the story, although the story is cool and the book itself is very cool. Um, it's a very well-regarded book. Um, but it changed my life because it was really the first time that I got into like a literary argument with someone mm-hmm. or, or uh, an argument about media. And there was no clear yes or no answer. Right. It's not like, well, if you look at it this way, it's clear that it's this. And then the other person was like, no, no, it's really not. Um, and there's nothing clear about the book uh, that, that tells you one way or the other. And that book is Slaughterhouse-Five oh, uh, by, yeah. by Kurt Vonnegut. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting into an argument with someone in high school when, when I read it um, and being and then being like, well, you know, uh, so those spoilers. Well, uh, you know, well, you know. The whole m- weird sci-fi mystical thing doesn't actually happen. It's just his like escapism and flashbacks and stuff. And I was like, why? No, like you can have both. Like it can be that. And also he was abducted by aliens from planet Tralfamador. I don't see why he couldn't like I don't see why it has to be that mundane, you know, and we just like went over it and over it and pulled out the book and looked at passages and stuff. And it's like, no, see, it has to be this way. It's like, nope, see, this kind of denies that. And it's like, we just never got to an agreement. Um, and that's probably partially why she dumped me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, it was like, uh, that was the first book where I was like, yeah, there's no, 
like you can interpret something any way you want. Yeah. Like you can interpret a piece of media any way you want. And if you can defend it, then that's it. Like there's like you have a place, you have a point, you have something that you can talk about um, and no one can really take that away necessarily. And you can yeah. be convinced of one thing or another. Uh, but yeah, it was cool. And and the book itself is kind of only incidental to that. And I, you'll see that a lot more in my list as well, mm. where it's like the book itself is just kind of like a, a minor catalyst to something. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Billy Pilgrim, Unstuck in Time, Zach. What do you have yeah, for your number four? So it goes. Uh, my number four, uh, uh, may, I, I picked up this book because it was a television show. Uh, a long time ago, but it just got redone. Uh, just got redone. I can't. I don't talk very well. Remade. Yeah, it just got remade. Uh, over on the Fox with old Neil deGrasse Tyson. Oh. Uh, it was Cosmos. Uh, it was out uh, just like a year ago. Uh, so I said, everyone's like, "Hey, you know, it's like a book and like a mm-hmm. TV series." And I was like, "Okay, let me let, let me pick it up." You know, my my uh, interest in science was growing and. Uh, the some of that had been denied in my childhood for various uh, <laughs> reasons. Uh, so I so I needed to I need to read what old Carl Sagan had to write in Cosmos, and it was amazing. Uh, I soaked it up. I read it uh, like on the I'm on my porch. It was just nice. I would sit there after work and I'd read about all these great people who made all these discoveries. Um, and just Carl Sagan writes so incredibly well. Uh, I learned that there was a, an idea to for space flight through the propellants of atomic bombs dropped mm-hmm. behind a ship mm-hmm. with a blast shield. Mm-hmm. I thought that was the craziest, cool thing ever. Um, so just, I mean, that book uh, really uh, taught me a lot of things that I didn't pick up from my childhood and just uh, how important important certain figures were in in uh, in history for everything we do today uh, that don't get uh, a whole lot of recognition which was a lot of what uh Neil deGrasse tyson's i think certainly some episodes uh were about on cosmos which was great um what i said yeah i was agreeing yeah 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 yeah. uh so that was a really good book and i have like pale blue pale blue dot by (laughs) carl sagan that i haven't uh quite cracked into yet because i was reading other books but Cosmos is uh, really good, and it really uh, got me like way, way more interested in space than I like ever was before. Cool, excellent. Um, my number four. Uh, one of my fondest memories of growing up was going to my grandparents' house, and we went to my grandparents' house a lot. And um, it's one of those. I think I think this happens a lot, and I don't know if it's happened to me yet, but I'm sure it will very soon. Is that your style gets stuck? In a specific time period, right? So my grandparents' um, decoration, decor, everything was stuck in um, the mid-1960s. And some of it was very cool. I, I mm-hmm. actually wish that I could still go back and, and get some of their furniture, and, and I don't know why I didn't ask for the furniture when, when my grandfather passed. Um, but the one thing that I would always do is they had this little small bookshelf full of books related to Disney. And I, this is me, you know, before really reading, reading or paying attention to reading. But I love to flip through these books and see all the Disney characters in there and and see things about them without really paying attention to what the material was. And the favorite book that I liked was this huge, like, f- it seemed like it was 500-page uh, tome 
that I could pull out, and they had pictures from the early days of Disney animation all the way up to, at the time when this book was published, uh, the most recent uh, animated feature that they had done, and they showed all these really crazy, um, essentially behind-the-scenes drawings is what we would call concept sketches, this kind of stuff. And I was just always fascinated by this book from a very young age, probably like three or four, um, all the way up until, you know, probably 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd always loved it a lot, even though I had never really read it. And then when I got into uh, college, this book had been out of print for a long time, and it came back into print in, like, I want to say, like, 91 or 92. And our bookstore had it, and it was very expensive. And I was like, oh, I remember this book. I'm going to buy it because it brings back these memories. And I sat down and, and really started to read what was the book was about. And it was not only a little history of the Walt Disney Studios, but it was also this concept and these ideas of how Disney animators brought things to life on the screen. It's Disney's Illusion of Life by Ollie Johnston and Frank Thomas, two of the nine old men that worked at at Disney for forever. Um, And it just breaks down, and it has, even today, people are still referring back to this book as, you want to learn how to animate, read this book, because it's got the principles in there uh, that you need to know in order to animate. We've Zach, I think you even tried to copy some of those uh, not too long ago. Yeah, there was a video that was going around, if you ever follow graphic stuff, of someone going through nine steps really quick and doing it. Yeah. So for many reasons, Disney's The Illusion of Life influenced me not only as from the animation and compositing uh, stuff that I do, but also just this whole history of Disney and being able to pick up this book and read it and, you know, see the progression of art through the ages Um, for year. I mean, it is probably the biggest book that I own because it's big and it's heavy and it doesn't fit on a shelf. And I have moved across the country time and time again, and I used to have books that would, you know, fill up that one whole wall over there, Zach. Um, but over the years, I've had to whittle them down. And this is the biggest, most cumbersome book that I own. <laughs> and I still cannot get rid of it because it's a great book. Uh, Disney's The Illusion of Life. In fact, in this room, Zach, the books that are on my list are should all be in this room. Oh, Yeah, they shouldn't be anywhere else. And if else you the find house. them, you get a cookie. Well, I've only I've got I've got two short bookshelves over here, and they're all over there. So there you go, uh, Matthew. You what do you have for your? You get, what do you have on your number three? My number three is actually surprising in that it was given to me by my grandmother. My grandmother was born in the year nineteen seventeen, and uh, always admired President Kennedy, and was relatively conservative in a strangely liberal way. She was a, an English teacher for many, many years in one-room schoolhouses. And eventually, you know, by the time I actually lived with her, was in her 60s and 70s, didn't have a whole lot of use for the opinions of stupid people. So when I found in one of her myriad bookshelves, and by shelves I mean the house was covered with books, I found a copy of The Bachman Books by Stephen King. And I went, what in the world is this? Because I only knew Stephen King as the scary, scary guy. You know, this is late in my high school career. I'm trying to figure out, first of all, why does grandma have this? What is what is this all about? I'd never read a Stephen King. So I, I said, hey, can I have this? She said, sure. She said she kind of liked it. And I read it. And it's an amazing collection of novellas, basically. They're not exactly short stories, but put them all together. They make a nice, thick Stephen King book. And this was after uh, his Richard Bachman pseudonym was first busted. 
So these are all clearly stories by a young Stephen King. The first two, Rage uh, and The Long Walk, I will still break out and read now. And I now have a collection that consists of every Stephen King short story and novella. I keep it by the side of my bed, actually, in case I get bored and want to read something quick, because it really appeals to me. And I found it was really kind of weird that, you know, my 75-year-old grandmother had this and enjoyed it. And she had apparently bought it because the copy had um, on the cover a kid in a classroom with a chalkboard. And it turned out that the story was about that kid shooting his teacher and weird, terrible things happening for, you know, five or six hours. But we talked about it briefly and I realized, oh, my God, my grandmother's actually a real human being. But I also realized that I love Stephen King, especially in short bursts when, you know, he's not going on and on and on and on. A thousand pages of Stephen King is a little too much for me. But in those novella forms, I found perfectly digestible and really amazing chunks of story. Uh, The Running Man, which became that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, Mm -hmm. is also in that book. What is it, the but, Four Seasons that has uh, the body? That's Different Seasons that oh, has different seasons, the okay. body, which became Stand By Me. It yeah. has Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, which became Shawshank Redemption. It has Apt Pupil, which was a movie with Ian McKellen uh, several years ago. Uh, it's about a, a young kid who becomes obsessed with this man next door who turns out to be a Nazi on oh, the Oh, yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then it has a fourth story called The Breathing Method, which is probably the best in the book. And, of course, is the one that doesn't have a movie. But, yeah, the the Bachman books is my number three because it really showed me that, A, Stephen could write. B, maybe that horror stuff wasn't all, you know, crap and terrible, stupid, stupids. But also that even old people sometimes have opinions and personality and aren't exactly what you expected of them. There you so, go. That was kind of cool. Rodrigo. Hello. 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 So uh, my number three is a textbook uh, for a class that I took. Um, And uh, it's called Language Myths. And it's by uh, Bauer and Trudgill. And they're the editors. And and actually, every chapter is written by a different person. Um, And basically, it's a bunch of it's a linguistics book. And it's a bunch of myths about language and then people talking about them. You know, uh, like that sort of thing of like um, uh, women talk more than men or, you know, Eskimos have a thousand words for snow, but no words for hello. That kind of thing. Actually, I don't think that one's in there. That's one we talked about in the class, but I, I don't remember if that one's actually in there. Uh, but it's it's stuff like that. Nobody has an axe or like everybody has an accent except for me. Uh, television is ruining the way that people talk. It's like Americans don't speak English correctly. That sort of thing. Right. Um, and people going through and talking about them and, um, it really kind of jarred me in a lot of ways. And like, it's something that I was kind of like looking around and the rest of my classmates, sometimes I felt, I felt weren't getting in that, uh, there will kind of always be a group of people and it's easy to malign other people and one of the strongest most effective ways of doing it is through language either by naming them or by criticizing the way that they talk and we see that today um you know i mean 
uh, I just recently read something where somebody on was saying like, why is it that, you know, why is it that black people, instead of saying you are a fool, will say you a fool, you know, uh, and uh, being like, oh, you know, that's not correct or whatever. And then somebody going through and being like, okay, this actually manifests in a lot of languages. Like, this is not because they don't know better because it's, you know, a, a grammar problem. It's because this is the way that this group of people, this particular group of people talks. And it's perfectly effective. You understand what they're saying. Um, the problem is, is that there is an kind of an elitist idea of how language should be. And this book goes through and kind of hits on a lot of that stuff. And if, if you listen to the Major Spoilers podcast and possibly even the show... Um, you've heard me literally say the words, uh, language can be a tool of oppression. Um, and it, it absolutely is. And this book really put that in perspective for me that sometimes these things that we hold to be completely true and obvious are really only a fact are only really because of our upbringing and because of these ideas that get repeated to us over and over again. And neither language nor race nor economic status or anything like that. Again, all that stuff is kind of arbitrary and stuff that society kind of like uh, builds around. But they're all kind of like these man-made structures that don't necessarily have to be the way they are. Mm -hmm. Cool. Fascinating. I see it appear on uh, Amazon right now. And you said, wh which one was the author on this? Because there's three different version of language myths, and they're by, all by different authors. Uh, the one that I have is by uh, Lori Bauer okay. and Peter Trudgill. That's the very first one that comes up. So there you go. Cool. Uh, Zach, what do you have as your number three, please? Uh, my number three is a book that was actually introduced to through the, our podcast we do, Zach on Film. It was a tie-in to one of the movies, and I said, "Hey, before I watch this, I'm gonna I'm gonna read this book just to see what it's all about because I know it's supposed to be involved. The plot's supposed to kind of go along with it. Let's just let's read it so we can do a new comparison." So I sat down and uh, I read Philip K. Dick's "Do Androids oh, yeah. Dream of Electric Sheep," oh. and uh, that book. Do they? I'm not sure. Uh, spoilers. <laughs> oh, man. Um. That book, re I think, I mean, I think I read a few sci-fi books before, and I maybe I hadn't, but I'd certainly been exposed to the genre before I read this book. Uh, but but Philip K. Dick's book really, I don't know, just I guess really made clear in my mind the idea of like commentary through sci-fi and. Um, just what he was doing with the idea of technology and just like humanity. And then again, there's a religion aspect that is a common theme through most of these books that I choose. Uh, that book, I really just uh, really absorbed it and read it super fast and really enjoy like every page of that book and just the whole experience. And then just kind of sitting back and then digesting it and then getting to talk about it uh, on the podcast, comparing it to the um Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, mm -hmm. which is a which is a really nice experience, and I don't know. It just like when I think of books that I really, really uh, have enjoyed, and I think about you know quite often, um, that book absolutely comes to my mind more than I mean. I love the Harry Potter series when I was little, but when I think of books that really. Uh, 
just made me think uh, outside of the book and put more thought into it. And besides, just when I was reading it, sure, uh, that's the book that really sticks my mind. And so, you know, I would say that's changed my life. Cool, excellent. All right, my number three. Um, back in the eighties, I would listen to NPR. All the time. I loved NPR because I got to listen to classical music, mm-hmm. got to hear some uh, conversations. And then on Sunday nights, they would run audio dramas. Uh, I got to, I guess, uh, my parents had kind of raised me to listen to NPR a lot because my dad was into classical music. Still is. He's still alive. Um, so we would listen to that all the time. And then one day he came home from work and opened up a Time Magazine ad and said, hey, Stephen, they are doing a radio adaptation of Star Wars. And I was like, oh, I've got to listen to this. And so I would tune in Sunday nights listening to their take on on the Star Wars uh, story, done as a radio drama, really good. But then on other sides of that, they had these other radio dramas. And that's how I get introduced to, um, uh, well, I forget their names. Uh, it doesn't matter. But one of the ones that they did was they did this adaptation of a character called Doc Savage, this man of bronze who was this 1930s adventure guy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what is this stuff? And so I started kind of trying to figure out a little bit about him. But, of course, this was pre-internet days. <laughs> and uh, DC Comics had a comic. Well, no, that would have been after. Um, but I went down to the Kansas State Fair, and there was this book peddler there selling books. And I just happened to see right down at the very bottom of a stack of stuff – the very first edition of Doc Savage, The Man of Bronze. shouldn't say first edition. It was the, uh, the Penguin Books uh, reprints from the 1960s. Uh, but Doc Savage, The Man of Bronze by uh, Kenneth Robeson, who we know today as Lester Dent. Um, and I just said, I've got to buy this. And I was like, Mom, can we buy this? And I was probably 13, I think, 13 or 14. And she's like, yeah, sure. So we bought it, and I read it and devoured it, and then... For the next, you know, 35 years, I have not been able to stop with this fascination over Doc Savage and these adventures and this idea of and this is really my first real introduction to uh, pulp tales mm-hmm. and the things that went on and the stories that were told, sometimes good, sometimes bad, sometimes very repetitive. Uh, and I think that's what happened towards the end of Doc Savage's uh, tales is that it, they became very, very predictable to me. But man, Doc Savage, Man of Bronze, that book, I still, in fact, I have still all of my original ones that I would buy uh, growing up. Just fantastic reads. And I, I love that. And it was a real changer for me because it really gave me an insight into heroes that were not capes and tight heroes. Mm-hmm. It gave me an insight into a different time period that was not just, hey, let's go kill those Nazis. Um, and they were just these little thrilling adventure stories that you could get on the cheap uh, many, many years ago. So Doc Savage, the Manic Bronze is my number three. There you go. Matthew, what do you have for number two? My number two is probably going to spoil somebody's down the line. No, it doesn't matter. I I apologize in advance for that. My number two, I was, I want to say maybe 14 when this book came into my life. And it was an accidental thing that my friend, uh, Brian, who God love him, his whole family, wonderful people, all sweetest people in the world. They all had the exact same speech impediment. And that's neither here nor there. I just like to mention it. He loaned me this book and he said, it's totally great. And I'm like, Oh yeah, sure. I hear that all the time. People are trying to get me to read these books that are totally great. And I took it home and I read it and I read it and I read it and I, couldn't really put it down. I cleared 
the entire book. And then the next day I went, I really like that book. He's like, how far are you? I'm like, I want the next one. So he loaned me the next one. And at the time there were three uh, in the trilogy. Now there, I think are six, six, I think yeah. in the hitchhiker's guide to the mm-hmm. galaxy trilogy by Douglas Adams. But when I read that first one, I really felt like I was kind of home. I felt a kinship mm-hmm. with these characters and their absurd universe. And the fact that nobody was really a cool, awesome square jawed hero. Yeah. And they were all kind of jerks. <laughs> And they lived in a world where terrible things happened. And no matter what you did, the terrible things continued mm-hmm. to happen. And the people who should have stopped the terrible things were actually people who were on board going, no, no, we've got to build bypasses. It's important. Right. That's that's how things go on. And poor Arthur Dent forced to run around in, in, in his robe. I want to say it's the second book, but it may be the third that has almost a whole chapter devoted to explaining why the word Belgium is incredibly rude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the uh, American version, but in the European version, they just go ahead and use the f bomb. Yeah, in uh, I, I love that. It Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams is also my number two, and yeah. I was in sixth grade. How old are you when you're in sixth grade? 12 or 13. Yeah, so 12, 12 years old, something like that. And I remember being at the local Walmart or Alco or something and being in their little book section and seeing this thing with a thumb out and then this little green planet sticking its tongue out at you. And I was like, what is this book? I think I will buy it. And again, it's one of those, just like you, Matthew, where I devoured it from mm-hmm. page one and didn't stop. And then, of course, I found out that there was a radio drama on that. And I think shortly after I read it, that's when NPR, in addition to doing the Doc Savage stuff, was also doing the uh, BBC rebroadcast of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And then um, shortly after that or concurrently with that, PBS started doing The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy television show. So from about sixth grade through eighth grade, I was just everything Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adams, uh, obviously has informed my life a great deal uh, because he was also on my list with Last Chance to See. But getting this weird, obscure, irrelevant humor and sometimes very, very dry humor where just this little phrase or something is thrown in there yep. really, really, really struck me. And um, this is still today one of the best books I've ever read, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. The the thing that always stu- – and I actually use this all the time is early on, and I want to say it's in the very first chapter when they're they're on board the Vogan ship. Right. And Ford is like, we're safe now. And Arthur's like, what do you mean? He's like, we're on board the ship that just destroyed your planet. He's like, oh, this must be some new definition of the word safe with <laughs> which I was previously unfamiliar. As I say that, I don't even realize it's from here until I go back and read the book. As a kid because- growing up – I really wanted my own little guide to the galaxy, this little book that you would open up and it would contain all the information about everything you could ever imagine. And I would even, I even had a spiral notebook where I was pulling all the definitions out of the hitchhikers uh, trilogy at the time and writing them in there in alphabetical. So if you wanted to find out what a pangalactic gargle blaster was, you could flip in my, in my spiral notebook and you could read that (laughs) definition and I would draw little pictures in there. It was awesome. And today, Today, we have a little thing called the iPad, which is essentially your <laughs> little r- rectangular thing. It doesn't have a don't panic on it. I, somebody can make a fortune selling uh, covers. They do. do they? 
there. Yeah, because my uh, Galaxy Tab actually somebody wanted to get me the cover with that, and I'm like, I've got a nice cover, thanks. Yeah, but oh man, uh, today we have the iPad, and that is my that is my Hitchhiker's Guide to everything. So it contains all the information in the universe. And it also that we allows know you of. to scan all those notebook pages in. Yes, it does. Now it doesn't allow me iPad. to stick out my electronic thumb and hitch a ride <laughs> with a passing yet a Vogon Starfleet, but give it time. Rodrigo, That's the what, iPad six. Yeah, there you go, Rodrigo. What do you have on your number two? Uh, my number two is again kind of a book that is uh, incidental to the story, but it's still kind of uh, important. Um, uh, as as you may or may not know, um, if you listen to shows on the Major Spoilers Network, uh, I I am part of a show called Critical Hit. I am what? Yes. That's what is right. these hits of criticals? Yes. So Critical Hit is a show in which we sit down and play a role-playing game, and people listen to it for some reason, and they like it, um, like wow. weirdos. But uh, so actually, you know, role-playing games have been a very important part of my life for about a decade now. Um and it all kind of started because one day, kind of on a whim, I saw this flyer for a vampire LARP at my university. So I went and I was hooked on role-playing games. So like the very first role-playing book I owned uh, was Loss of the Night, revised uh, by uh, Richard Dansky et al. And it's the, <laughs> um, it's the port of vampire the masquerade into larp so the origin like uh, of the revised core book for vampire the masquerade so vampire the masquerade tabletop role-playing game then loss of the night is the larp version of it um it also i think really speaks to the fact that i came into role-playing at kind of like a really odd angle like most stories start with like well I was kind of a huge nerd. That one's still true. But then I got you know, together with some friends and started playing Dungeons and Dragons. And then from there I went. But like that's like for me, I'd been role playing for maybe two or three years before I played my first D&D game. Um, so it was uh, it just kind of like how I came to it. Um, and now. You know, um, again, gaming continues to be a very important part of my life. I'm pretty proud of what Critical Hit has become and where it's going. And, you know, people seem to really like it. And to a certain degree, that would have never happened if it wasn't for Loss of the Night. Or as, or as we like to call it, because there were so many, like, errors in it, <laughs> Floss of the Night. <laughs> <laughs> we were so cool. Um but yes, uh, Laws of the Night, my number two uh, well, book that changed my life. What is your nature and demeanor? Right? Exactly, exactly. It's like how many how many mental traits are you bidding? I don't yes. understand your inspiration. <laughs> that is that is exactly right, Zach. What do you have for number two? <laughs> it's hard to follow up Vampire LARP. I will just start right there. It's actually VLARP. Oh, it's VLARP. VLARP. Yes. Well, yeah, I would do something called VLARP. Um, uh, Saturday at the park, not, man. Yeah, man. Saturday so, at the VLARP. Do I have to like wear a really high collared coat when I do that? I don't know. You can dress however you want. Oh, good. Uh, can I can I just throw in a quick LARP story? Like, sure. Yeah. Like, 
so it's because it's it's a costuming thing is like uh i was i was in my dorm and i was going downstairs and there was this girl and she was sewing a cape for a uh for a play because i lived in the arts dorm and we had like a, a theater in the dorm and so we like the the dorm itself like put on plays because again weirdos right so um <laughs> there's this girl and she's sewing this cape and she's like grumbling and i'm like hey are you okay and she's like yeah i just have to sew all these capes for the show and i'm like really upset about it and i'm like well oh, that sucks and she's like yeah and i know that there are people in this dorm who play this vampire game and i sent this email out to see if anybody had any capes and nobody answered and i'm like i really wanted to be like uh well the game not it's not like you show up in uniform dressed as dracula <laughs> Um, but I was like, no, nope. I'm just not going to touch it. She has a needle. Yeah. So I just left. <laughs> I always dressed as Dracula. Well, yeah. And that can be your thing. That was my thing. And I never wore a tie because something, something character trait. Exactly. All right. So my number two, uh, it's by a book that, um, in the, in, in the circles I run in, Outside of major spoilers, which is a which is the lowly depraved state, we are a high class of, of human here. At, uh, major oh, spoilers, God. clearly, clearly, we are we are the epitome of human. Pretty much, <laughs> um, um, agree. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, well, I've seen Wally. We are what the human race yeah. is going to evolve in. We're there. We're there. Um, we're ready for the ship. Uh, there's a there's an author who's kind of divisive, and um, again, this follows. Uh, a, a, a religion theme who's this, this uh, author has been there to, uh, labeled a heretic and so when his new book came out and uh, and by new book I mean this was in 2010 I think oh yeah it, many it, years ago it was, it, was ca- it was causing up a, causing up a storm I said hey uh, you know let's, let's check this out and so I read it it is wonderful uh, it w- w- what this book did for me was allowed to start allowed me to start questioning things I mean like yeah it, we should question things and uh, this is a book called Love Wins by Rob Bell, who's a who's a writer and he's a pastor, and now he has his own show on Oprah, and tours with her and everything. Uh, interesting person, uh, great speaker, uh, and he asked a lot of questions about uh, the afterlife, which uh, made many people uh, upset and labeled him a heretic. And they were good, good, absolutely solid questions that needed to be asked. And, um, so mainly just this book, uh, just opened up the avenue for me to start questioning things. Uh, so there you go. Not as, not as funny as, uh, vampires. What's the book called? It's called Love Wins by Rob Bell. All right. Uh, let's see. We've already done my number two. Matthew, what is your number one? Well, it's certainly not vampires or pastors. (laughs) Um, well, it's not. Is it pasteurized vampires? Oh, pasteurized vampires. Yeah, you have to go. No, it's actually the novelization of Surf Nazis Must Die. From... <laughs> Come on, you knew it was coming. Uh, anybody who's been listening to the show knows that it was coming. No, anybody actually, who's been listening to Zach on film knew that was coming. Hey, everybody who listens to major spoilers listens to everything, and they listen to it in the well, order actually, that I record. Actually, it. they don't. So, what I would suggest <laughs> is everybody head over to iTunes right now. And yes. subscribe to the Major Spoilers Podcast Network Master Feed, because you may not realize it, but we record anywhere from seven to ten 
podcasts a week and release them. Some of them have their own feeds like Zach on Film and, of course, Top 5 that you're listening to. But some of our shows only come out and are only available on the Major Spoilers Podcast Network Master Feed. So go check it out over at the iTunes or find RSS readers everywhere. You're welcome for that setup, by the way. My number one is actually a book that changed my life in a very, very meaningful, although not entirely positive, but not entirely negative way. And I think without this book, we would not be here. And by which I mean we wouldn't be here. I mean I wouldn't be here. Um, I went to college in the year 1989. It was a good year. I didn't hate it. Um, And in Hayes, Kansas, where I went to college, there was a little creepy bookstore down by the bar. Yeah, which, there was. You know, was a, it's not yeah, really you remember the bar, bookstore. but it's not. It's a couple blocks. On the same away. street, on the same block. Used to be, anyway. No. Bookstore when I moved the university? Here, he's talking about the, um, no, he's talking about um, Gulliver's. Tech there used to be. Covers. Oh, no, you're talking no, about no, that no, one no, that's over by the home. Yeah, yeah, that one no longer exists. The used bookstore over by yeah, the yeah. home. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. almost as if my sentence would have ended somewhere. Yeah. But hey. Back to where I was. In that <laughs> in that store, I bumped into a leather-bound book with gold edging and, and, and gold print on the cover. And usually when I see stuff like that, I'm like, oh, well, this is like old, weird books. This is like Shakespearean crap or some sort of you know novel about Pliny the Elder. But I picked it up and I looked at it. And in gold type on the spine of this leather-bound volume were the words Encyclopedia – Brown? Of superheroes. Oh. And I said to myself, I read comics. I like comics. Let's look at what this encyclopedia of superheroes is about. And I bought this book. It didn't have – it apparently came originally with a dust jacket. The dust jacket didn't make it to the used bookstore. But I started reading it, and I started seeing things that I had never heard of. You know, I'd read a lot of comics. I knew about the DP7 you know, I, I knew about your Green Lantern and your Spider-Man and sometimes your Adam Strange, but I had never heard of guys like the Music Master. I never heard of Ajax, the Sun Man. I knew about Underdog, but I didn't realize that Underdog actually had an associate slash villain called Batty Man. And I read through this book and it's literally 400 pages. There are some errors in it. Don't get me wrong. You know, nothing's perfect, but tons and tons and tons of information about comic books and characters and movies and television shows and superheroes that I had never heard of. And it was kind of interesting to me to know that all of these stories were being told that I hadn't heard, that I could go out and dig them up. This is a pre-internet society. I didn't have Amazon. You know, I couldn't click on the major spoilers link at majorspoilers.com. And buy anything that I wanted. I had to go to creepy bookstores and comic shops. So what this book instilled in me was a knowledge that there were years and years and years of comic book history out there that somebody needed to find and somebody needed to read about. Somebody needed to tell Stephen about so that 20 years down the line, Stephen would go, you know what we should make? We should make a comic book website. Uh, I actually had the website going before you joined. I understand that. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that's why I said there are some errors in the encyclopedia yes and then you could go and find me what? let me finish my sentence <laughs> no impossible it's, shut your hole the encyclopedia of superheroes is still a wonderful volume even 30 years out of date it doesn't have complete entries on anyone and I know that now but it was an amazing entryway into stuff 
that I had barely even scratched the surface of. If you say to me right now today, what's the most obscure character you know about, nerd? I will probably tell you about something that I first read about in the Encyclopedia of Superheroes, like the Black Bat, who predated Batman by a couple of months in the in the pulps. Western guy? No, not him. No, not the Western guy. Oh, the guy okay. with the wings and the, and the cowl. Uh, Anthony Quinn was blinded by uh, Oh, yeah, Orb of the Greek, yeah. Yeah, that guy. He shares a little bit of his origin with Batman, a little bit with Daredevil. Or Captain California with his magical flying surfboard. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Did you know, Stephen? Yes, That I at did. one point... Oh, okay. So you can tell me all about Zarkon the Mystic. Yes. Okay, go ahead. This is not that show to do that. This is top five. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, right. Top five. Which is why my number one served... <laughs> The Encyclopedia of Superheroes uh, by Jeff Roven, a guy who used to write comics himself. Yeah. It, and it's interesting. I'm trying to think because I think I remember seeing this book, not your copy. I think I remember a seeing copy. a book like this. This book was done in the 70s, you say? 1984, 85, something okay. like that. All right. Because I, I want to say I saw some kind of copy like this at one point, and it was like um, almost like a – well, some people may may remember like bibliography books, you know, where you go in mm-hmm. and it would be like that whole thing where it would point you to articles that you could go find. Yeah. What well, is it like that? Not exactly. Uh, if you go in and you look at, say, I'm trying the to first think of the book entry. I'm thinking of that that would have everybody listed in there, but it was very much like a little bibliography. It gave you a little like yeah. a paragraph or two description. Now, of course, Batman or somebody like that would have you know a page or so devoted like, to it. Yeah, Batman has four pages. It'll yeah. be like it'll give you the name, their alter ego. Where they appeared, what they do, it describes their costume. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Uh, this I've is seen where this I learned what a point. jerkin is. Do you know what a jerkin is? <laughs> this is a all, all ages uh, podcast. So I, it is jerking. a short sleeved, form fitting garment. A jerkin. <laughs> but yes, this is how I learned what it is. For instance, if you go and you look at Adam Strange, red bodysuit and trunks, golden gloves, boots, blue belt. Holster, white straps, crisscrossing the chest. That's actually what he looks like. Yeah. No, I, I, I've but seen this book before, but at the time oh, it yeah. was very expensive for me to buy. Oh, yeah. It was expensive when I bought it. It was like three weeks pay. It was like 35 bucks. Yeah. 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 No, the bookstore that you're talking about, I remember because that's where I got my used copy of Princess Bride from. Yes. That's where you could buy all the really weird books and occasionally mm-hmm. things with an adult bent. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the many. Um, I'm not saying they had the latest issues of everything. I'm just saying. Rodrigo, what do you have for your number one? Uh, my number one is a book whose actual like title I don't even remember, but it, it was probably something pretty close to, to what I have down. Um, and, and it kind of comes with a, a story like the other ones. So uh, I was a freshman in college. My very first semester of my very first year in college and I was putting my classes together and my advisor who was terrible um I came to her with my classes and I was like hey I'm thinking about taking this class and she was like yeah that sounds like a good idea which is the main reason why she was terrible she should have stopped me um and uh that class was evolutionary biology which was extremely interesting just so interesting but i was not cut out for it and eventually i was informed 
that at my school, the evolutionary biology is a weed out class for pre-meds. Like basically oh, yeah, it's yeah. the it's mm. the one where they put up a brick wall and only the guys that are gonna be doctors are gonna make it over the top, right? Um it was terrible. It was like the most stressful moment of my life to to be in that class. And um this textbook was so expensive it was just so the the evolutionary biology textbook was just so incredibly expensive even compared to my other incredibly expensive textbooks um and it just was this like just became this huge burden there were things because of my labs like there were like student organizations that i wanted to join and i couldn't because i had to go to these labs um and it was just awful right so i went and talked to my advisor and i was like i think i'm gonna drop the like i i can't take this class i'm gonna fail and my gpa is gonna go down and i'm gonna be terrible i'll never get a job um and uh some older friends of mine uh were like we'll just drop the class and i was like you can you can just drop class They're like yeah, yeah yeah drop the class and your gpa won't suffer you just have to do it before the drop date um, so I went and I dropped the class and there were no consequences to me dropping that class. Yeah. Like <laughs> my life improved because I dropped the class. Like things suddenly became incredibly easy because I dropped the class and I was like, there are no rules. It's like the things that you think are good can be bad. Like up is down dogs and cats living together, you know? Like, and that, that book was kind of like that, the thing that was like, like typified it and embodied it. It's like, um, in order to succeed, sometimes you have to like fail at something or, or, or like give up. It's like, this is the opposite of what I had been taught my whole life by TV. You know, it's like, give up on this and you will succeed was like the most amazing lesson that I ever learned. Um, and I applied it to the rest of my college career and I graduated just fine. It's like college became so much easier when I became able to like prioritize things and just be like this entire thing, this entire thing that seems super important. I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not doing it. And like, it just like made my life so much easier and it's just kind of like all like that both that uh realization and that darkness exists within my uh evolutionary biology textbook which is still somewhere around my house <laughs> wow cool all right so uh evolutionary biology textbook yeah yep. number 1 zach what can you do to uh to step up from that well you know all my life I've had thoughts. Yeah, that's you know, good. <laughs> thoughts are in your thoughts are in my head. Uh, and I just always thought, you know, they're there, you there, you think about things, thoughts come in, thoughts come out, it's a long day. You think, you think, you think, you go to sleep. Yeah. You dream, that's cool. That's I mean, dreaming's pretty cool. Can that's be. not what about this not this book is about though. I just wanted to say dreams are cool. Uh you know, you have emotions, you get happy, you sad, you get, but you always try to, you know. Stop being happy and I was not being sad and be happy. Don't yeah, be yeah. angry. Yeah. You know, get happy. Yeah. There's a song about that. Um, and then I read a book 
Who uh, moved my cheese? Yes, I did. <laughs> and I was like, well, this is life's done. Uh, I can deal with change now. <laughs> no, I still have not read that book, even since the time Matthew started talking about being the podcast. Uh, I, read, I read a book by an Indian Jesuit priest named Anthony de, de Mello. He read a book called Awareness uh, that... Uh, like seriously changed my life mainly because I was having really started having really weird conversations about uh, uh, with Aubrey before our marriage, and he was saying things like, um, a lot of it was uh, disconnecting from labels because labels uh, have prejudice against them, and uh, if you apply labels to yourself, and people have these built-in prejudices against you, you shouldn't uh try to stick with other people because then you're just trying to group them in together and not see them as an individual or, uh, you know, things that might have brought, not brought up the best conversations, uh, you know, five months before you get married or like, yeah, I'm sure. Um, you know, like I have to be able to be happy even if we're not married. Like I just can't be depressed if, you right. know, uh, you die and I, I mean, if I live another 50 years, I just can't be depressed the whole time. So you have to, you know, establish this. Is this uh, before or after you watch Gone Girl? Oh, wait. <laughs> oh, no. I was married by the time I watched Gone Girl. Um, so this is this book uh, opened up my thinking about. Um, you know, you, you aren't your thoughts, you, you, you observe your thoughts, which is trippy when I think about it most days. Um, uh, you don't have to be, or being sad is not bad. It's just an emotion that you are right now and it'll go away and you'll be something different later, but just recognize what you were feeling at the time. And you know, that's, that's good. Cause you're in the moment and recognizing when you was, and this book really, um, challenged a lot of things in my past uh, really shaped my thinking in the present now and really just led me on to uh, a whole other wellspring of different books that taught me more things. But that book was really like this focal point of exploration uh, in my life. Good. Good for you, Zach. Thanks. Uh, so my number one in the top five books that changed our life is the Illuminatus Trilogy by Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson. Uh, this is a book that I don't know where I first started uh, hearing about it or listening to. It's probably from Bruce Otter when we were in college uh, talking about Illuminati and conspiracies and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but when I moved and was living in Atlanta, uh, I started listening to Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell and, and listening to some more of that stuff. And I'd one of the first episodes that I heard was an interview with Robert Anton Wilson. It's a great interview. And I was like, well, you know what? I'm finally going to go track down this book called Illuminatus Trilogy. And sure enough, the local uh, Barnes & Noble or whatever had it. They had like one copy. I paid for it in cash so that they couldn't track me down, couldn't track me in, <laughs> and put me on some list somewhere. And for the next probably three days, my mind was totally blown with everything that they have in there. It's a very stream of consciousness narrative. And, and my understanding was the book was originally written by uh, Shea and Wilson when they were working for Playboy and that they would correspond with a lot of people. They were in charge of some of the correspondence uh, sections and they just kept getting all these weird conspiracy theory, you know, letters from, from readers. Mm -hmm. And so they said, well, what if we write a book that is basically saying, yes, all this stuff is right and here's how. 
And my understanding is how they wrote it was they would write up to a point and then they just hand it off to the other person. Um, and the other person was then in charge of picking up and writing from that point forward. So yeah, as you read really this funny. book, it is super paranoid. It is super funny. It is very stream of consciousness. Like one moment you're in this um, equivalent of Nixon's mind, figuring out what's going on with him. And then you're inside the mind of a dolphin swimming uh, in the Pacific Ocean. And it is a real trip, uh, especially because this was the same time that um, the same week that I read it. And I never really paid attention to comics that were coming out. But Batman had one that was, uh, I think it was a Legends of the Dark Knight tale that was about conspiracy theories and pulling a lot mm. of the same stuff that was in this book and putting it into the comic. And it was the same time that Millennium was running on uh, Fox, which was all about conspiracy theories and stuff. And I basically, you know, shut all the curtains in our house and, and was super paranoid and super <laughs> freaked out. But it also said that there are things, again, there are things beyond that you don't know. And, and I'm not saying that I believe in all the conspiracy theories. But there are things that you don't know that you probably should be aware of. And these two went on to write other books, a lot of them talking about um, altered states of consciousness, uh, some of it brought on by drugs, some of it brought on by meditation, some of it just brought on by lack of sleep. And you listeners can go and listen to a major spoilers podcast. Um, what's the name of that one? Don't Eat the Sandwich or something like that? Altered Sandwiches. Altered States or something like that. Yeah, go listen to that where I talk about some altered states that I've been in. Uh, but it's just so great. And the first time I read it, it took me about three days because I was working. But then uh, when I was flying back and forth from one coast to the other, from uh, like Atlanta to California and doing that a couple of times a year, I would take this book purposefully with me to just freak mm -hmm. out, to just see if there was like some conspiracy group following me around. Why is he checking, you know, going through the baggage mm -hmm. check with this book? But then I could literally read the entire book from start to finish in the time that it would take me to fly from one coast to the other uh, because it's so good. And I've read it multiple times. I've probably read it probably two dozen times over the last 15 years, 15, 20 years. So it's, it's a great book. And um, if you're in the right mindset, I think you'll love it. I think a lot of people just hate it because they don't want to follow along or they think it's complete uh, craziness. Uh, but it's certainly worth checking out Illuminatus Trilogy by Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson, my number one book that changed my life. My only question is, why were people writing letters about conspiracy theories? In just Playboy? because people, <laughs> just people write about anything. Oh, okay. I mean, you know, people write uh, crazy stuff to us all the time at podcast at com, And some of it you have to dismiss and some of it you pay attention to. <laughs> but, you know, it's always out there. So, uh, all right, listeners, this is the part of the show where it is your time to send in something. But we want you to go over to the podcast posting page. Majorspoilers.com. In the comment section for this episode, why don't you share your list of the top five books that changed your life? And most importantly, don't just give us the list, but give us the reasons why this book changed your life. It takes a little bit of thought, a little bit of reflection, but man, I know I enjoy reading your comments and other people that visit the website enjoy reading your comments. And just got to keep in mind that everybody loves a list. We'll see you next time. If you have any questions, comments, topic ideas for future shows, or would like to sponsor a show, send an email to podcast at Majorspoilers.com. Visit Majorspoilers at Majorspoilers.com and be sure to check out the Major Spoilers Forum. You can also follow Major Spoilers on Twitter at twitter.com slash Majorspoilers. podcast is copyright 2015 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.
If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.